I wanted to spend a little bit of time, if there's anything so far, I know I did this sort of quick overview of powerlessness and higher power and faith and the connections for Buddhism and the 12 steps yesterday, but we didn't have much time because we went right into that experience of sharing our stories with another individual. So we didn't have much time for a larger discussion here in, in the big group. And a couple people came up to me or made a couple of comments about higher power. There was also something this morning, I forget what it was, wasn't it, that, we were, that I said we should talk about in the afternoon? Was it for you guys? Oh, yes. Yeah. So that kind of stuff, a little bit of time for that. We do have another exercise uh, this afternoon, but I just wanted to make sure that this retreat is happening not just on my timeline or my agenda, but also what you want to need, and I want you to help me dictate what gets spoken about rather than just me pushing my agenda on you. Um, so let's try to play with this. I actually don't know it, um, but maybe somebody here does. Uh, we might have some recovery scholars, and the question was something about what do we know about Bill and Bob's meditative experience. Right? How did they learn it? Did they practice meditation? Um, it, my information, or what I, comes to mind right now, is that uh, it says very little about meditation in the big book. The one place I, where it talks about, uh, now we are at step 11, it goes into that whole thing about thinking about our day, right? That whole, uh, Mary, I think, referred to it in her speaking last night. It talks about, uh, you know, upon awakening, we sort of pray for God's guidance, right? Upon When we're retiring at night, you know, throughout the day, we stop when, and that's sort of what 11th step, prayer heavy, in the big book, is my relationship to it in the kind of AA way that the 11th step. It's kind of more about reflecting and praying for your higher power's guidance. In the 12 by 12, Bill does talk about this sort of strange guided visualization. Imagine yourself on a beach, I think, at some point in the 12 by 12, in the 11th step around meditation. He says, right? Something about imagine yourself on a kind of... So this sort of relaxation exercise is offered. There's one point where he talks about um, now we ask our family to sit down with us and meditate. We ask our wives to sit down and meditate with us. Uh -huh. I think it's on 86 or 87. Uh -huh. And I'm like, hmm, what does that represent? I have no idea what, what he means by Quiet time, hang out. Let's have our family, you know, sit quietly together. Maybe <coughs> contemplate. Like something you can experiment with too. Like you could try it in different ways and see what works for you. Of course. Of course. What's your comment oh, on the, on this subject? Say the same thing to Ben Bobby. And use the prayer of Saint Francis. And the prayer of Saint Francis as a sort of 
which Lily and I, like Jason led us in last night, can be quite a nice meditation if you use like the serenity prayer or the prayer of St. Francis actually as a meditation and not just as a prayer. You know, if you actually sit down and say serenity and, and reflect on it. Even this word mindfulness that we're using here in Buddhism, uh, sati, sometimes is translated as contemplation. So it's quite good to sometimes contemplate in Buddhism, we contemplate impermanence. We contemplate the nature of self. We contemplate, think about, investigate, right? So part of the 12-step tradition is talking about contemplating this prayer of, of St. Francis, of actually really hanging out with, uh, what would it be like you know, to contemplate, uh, may I be of service, may I be... You know, all of those wonderful things in that St. Francis prayer. May I bring light to where there is darkness. May I bring harmony to where there is discord. May I, and it's a very, it's almost metta, isn't it? Not so different from the metta that we did with Stephanie this morning. May it be so. Over and over. May we bring the positive to where there is negative, where there is suffering, is St. Francis' prayer over and over. Not so different from the loving kindness. May we be happy. May all beings, may we be a force of loving kindness in this world. So there is that kind of sort of meditative technology in the recovery program. Uh, my feeling, my opinion is that it's not very well taught. Yeah, it's not very well explained how to contemplate the St. Francis prayer or how to meditate. Like even that thing, now we have our wives, right? And, or our family members and we get together and meditate. But it doesn't really say how we do that. So I've, I'm under the impression that they didn't really know what they were talking about. But they knew, I always have this feeling of like, they knew it was a good idea, <laughs> right? They got it. Meditation's a good idea. We're not sure exactly how to do that or how to teach it. I always had the impression too that they didn't want to get specific about their family. Yeah. So, but I don't know where I read it somewhere. It's, it's thanking one of the members for introducing the idea of that God as we understand Him. And then I read someplace else that that was actually to a Wilson who had the most difficulty with the religious aspect. Sure. Like it could have been that what they meant by meditation was like uh, inviting Jesus Christ into your heart and that that's actually what it meant for some of them. But they said, oh, wait, let's not make everyone do that because we're trying to be more open. So let's just call it meditation. I mean, I don't know. I, that's, um, that's a fantasy of mine. But those kind of things, sometimes when it's general, it's because of that. And good to be general like that. Yeah, um, I don't, I mean, I don't know either, but um, it, I believe it's in Bill's story um, where he's being seen by Young. So Young may have, I mean, and if you get into Young, um, there's some meditation in there. Mm -hmm. so as, as far as from the psychoanalytical standpoint, so. 
you know, but I, I do agree as far as um, them leaving it open. I also know that they had to revise the book and um, to, in order to get um, backing by the Catholic Church for them to push it and um, basically for them to like use it as suggested to people who needed problems in the, in the Catholic, or who had problems in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And so I know certain words were changed. I'm, I'm not the scholar, my partner's pretty good at this, um, but he's got like the original manuscript and all kinds of stuff at home. It's kind of crazy, it's very blunt. <laughs> and it says, you know, it's like, it, there's a lot of places in the book where it's like, um, you know, and it's suggested. Okay. They're like, no, you have to do it. All right. You, know, a lot in, you in must the, bow down. Yeah. And not necessarily about, about God, but just about certain, you know, he suggests this path, you know, it's like, no, you, this is the path. You know, this is what you have to do. So, and so many times. Yeah. Uh, we had this talk yesterday. There's a lot of great stuff in, in Bill's story. And it's a shortness for people. I mean, people that haven't read it or I mean, I, this is from book study where, you know, where I would go and read, you know, we would go through paragraph by paragraph. And sometimes it would take the third or fourth time of reading these things to really get what was going on in it. But um, he, you know, he already knew that he was on a path that was landing him in a hospital. That, that you know, he had really serious health problems, was losing jobs, etc. That's when his friend Ebby came to him, who was part of the Oxford group, which is kind of the, a lot of the, you know, stuff that became AA, you know, a lot of the foundation of it came from these Oxford group people. And if you go through, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff too in uh, We Agnostics, and that's, he, you know, Bill, when he wrote the big book, or when he did all that stuff, I mean, and he, it's all boiled down in that experience of sitting down with Ebby, and he's wondering how, you know, why is Ebby not, why does he not have this need to drink anymore that, you know, that I have still. He drank like I did, you know, I know, I knew this man, and he drank like I did. And, you know, and he talked to him about, you know, how he'd been saved by, you know, Oxford Group Religion, the church, and he started, he does this whole, he talks about, you know, how he really balked at that right away. How his immediate reaction to it was, you know, no, I can't, I can't do that. But then he talks about how, yes, I've, you know, I've had thoughts before, you know, I don't know that there's not some power of the universe. You know, he talks about, you know, it's really, he does talk about power of the universe and, you know, creator, blah, blah, blah. It's really a nebulous concept to him at this point. And he tells Evie that, you know, this is how I, you know, I don't know. And, you know, Evie just says, you know, opening yourself to the idea that maybe, you know, just the possibility is, is all you really need to do. And then he talks about, I mean, my favorite part of the book is he talks about, you know, right there, he talks about the icy intellectual mountain melting. You know, his need to really specify everything. And, you know, uh, and, you know, there was a lot of stuff, you know, went on when he wrote the book. There was a lot of stuff that, you know, it was done by committee afterwards. A lot of stuff that was kind of forced on him. I mean, all through his, you know, his life, he really... He really, you know, he was really an outsider, you know, and I really think, I mean, in the 30s for him to even, you know, suggest meditation 
or you know maybe he didn't understand the concept, but for him to put in there as we know it, you know, in the 30s, where this stuff was, you know, Christianity was, you know, it, yeah, and there was a lot of problems with that in the beginning too, you know, with a lot of people coming in, and still is today. But yeah. I mean, one of the things that sticks out for me about this, I'm interested in your experience too, Alex. Uh, is that even just in the last 70 years from the founding fathers how much has changed in interpretations and and even uh, I'm, I'm quite curious if anybody has much information or experience uh, with the other 12 you know we're talking about AA and the original but what about you know when they created the NA book and how they, I don't know, but how they brought meditation in or how OA or FA or uh, SLAA or any of these other 12-step offshoots, you know, programs have, you know, blossomed out of the 12-step program, out of this sort of attempt to be open-minded. And I asked that and I don't know if anybody has much information or, or experience with these pro other programs. Um, I don't have so much. Because also, uh, there's a, a bigger conversation here about, you know, I'm saying the Dharma or Buddhism, right? There's, uh, Bill, there's uh, Siddhartha Gautama Buddhism, right? There's the founding teacher and what he taught. And then there's... Uh, a hundred different traditions, a hundred different sects. You know, I mean, kind of two or three main ones, but within all of the Theravada and the Mahayana and Vajrayana and Tantrayana and all of these different Pure Land Buddhisms. And it's like there's what the Siddhartha taught, right? Like with this conversation we're having now, there's what Bill maybe thought, and Bob, and those first, the first Sangha. And then here we are 70 years later, or here we are 2,550 years later. You know? And that actually, my feeling, my hope, is that we don't have to be entirely on the same page as Bill and Bob, or as the Buddha. Um, and... I believe with all of my heart that the Buddha wanted us to find our own way. And uh, that, that Buddhism teaches that the truth is within you. And that what you're looking for will be discovered through your own direct experience and not in a philosophy or a theory or a religion. Uh, if anything, I think the Buddha was a bit down on religion even though he accidentally created one himself. He was not very key on dogmatic belief systems, which Buddhism can become also. And likewise, I think that well, recovery, you know, Bill and Bob, they knew we can't do this for anybody else. Everyone has to work the steps themselves. No matter how much you pray for someone else to get sober. 
Everyone has to do the prayer, the meditation, the inventories, the work themselves. Personal experience. I mean, I could say it in a whole different way, too, is that, you know, we've been fucking up Buddhism for 2,500 years now, changing, watering down, diluting. And, uh, you know, we've been doing the same thing to the 12 steps for 70 years now. Just tends to be what happens, right? There's this sort of brilliant thing, and then... So I, I can look at it from either way. I can look at it as diluting it, and I can also look at it as just opening the doors because so many more people can experience it in so many different ways. You know, and so this is coming out of this question about what did they know about Buddhism and, or meditation. Alex, what was your comment? It's mostly, it's occurred to me this few days that I've been here that this group of people, other than our various ages, would not have been imaginable 75 years ago. It would not have been at all likely 25 years ago. And probably not even 15 or 10 or 15 years ago. And in the spiritual tradition that I follow, other than Buddhism, we have a saying about revelation is never sealed. It, it unfolds in every generation because the experience that you have changes, becomes more complex. Bob and Bill never knew about the internet. Now that's changed our lives so much, so powerfully, that the experiences that we are having with recovery and spirituality and the Dharma, there are certain core principles that are the anchors and are universal, but then you get to those slow, messy details. Those are the ones we're having to sort out, I think, and such is the language. I mean, the language we were talking about in the Metasutra this morning, same thing. Yeah, yeah. Sheila? In this book that's called uh, AA Comes of Age, it points out Especially for me, that I was out of sober 15 years, I was expecting that my higher power was really over there. And then I got sick, and I did the three forty days meditation. And you know, I didn't see the higher power. You know, uh, I was really sick. That's why I quit the stores and eventually continued taking them. And I, I, now that I got sober again and clean, I understand why I resented with my higher power. And uh, I understand that my higher power did take care of me in moments that I, that 
that we, you know, that he was there. I, I call him him. I don't know why I call him him. But um, in, in all the moments, he was not there for me. So what exactly is the higher power? Is it somebody to direct you? And if you would direct, direct you, then you wouldn't have gotten so much trouble in life. So I have a conflict of interest, I would say, about this concept. And I need to clarify. And my sponsor said, just go over there and clarify with, you know, go meditate about it. I said, okay, I'll, I'll meditate about it. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so I, kind of I, I have an issue about it. So I have to really, I mean, you know, I want to keep, stay clean, you know. So if you have any input, or if anybody has any input on, on the higher power deal. There's a story that I, I heard about this guy. He's, he's, he's in this town. It's like a fable or something. He's in this town, and, and uh, there's the flood. And the, the waters are rising, and he's a, he's a man of faith. And uh, so this boat comes. He's praying to God. He's like, I have faith. I will be fine. I will be fine. And the, the boat, this boat comes along, and, and uh, he goes, Thank you, but but I have faith. God will take care of me. And so the boat goes on, and then the water rises kind of to his chest. And he's like, I have faith. Everything will be fine. It will be taken care of. And this boat comes, and he says, No, no, I have faith. Thank you. And the boat takes off. And then he's up to here, and the water's like right here. It's not so. And this helicopter comes and drops a little rope down. And he goes, Oh, I have faith. I'll be fine. Thank you, though. And he drowns and dies. And he goes to heaven. And he, and he finally meets with God, and, and God, he says, you know, I really had faith. I, I don't understand what, what happened. Why weren't you there for me? He goes, well, that's weird. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> <coughs> Thanks for listening. My eight-year-old This is a very important topic on some level, you know, for each of us to find some concept that uh, works for us. There's another perspective, perhaps, as I put out yesterday a bit, that my, you know, experience is that actually it doesn't matter what you believe, it only matters what you do. Right, because you because there's lots of people that have a lot of faith in God and higher powers that don't do good, that do awful, right? There's no lack of faith. So for you, for me, for us, it's not so much about what we believe. I I think on some level, it's about what actions we take, like how uh, we take our Vicodin. <laughs> whether you know prescribed as we take it as prescribed or not that kind of thing it's not to i don't, I don't to me it's not that there's any powers that are going to stop us from those actions right especially when you're not even asking them to i don't know if you were but it doesn't sound like it it sounds like your experience of relapse was more like uh you had stopped taking the action and then fell back into some old behaviors because you stopped practicing the new behaviors which were 
your prayer, your meditation, or your whatever it was. The action, those powerful actions. And whether we assign that meaning to uh, what we call our higher power or, or not, I don't know. It just feels to me it's much more important, you know, that kind of not picking anything up and, and calling somebody to see if you can help them when you're feeling, you know, these principles that we have of being of service, getting out of our selfishness and our self-centeredness and being more... There's something, too, that can be very, very protective about Buddhism. If you're a practicing Buddhist, if you are a follower of the Buddha, if you uh, prescribe to this sort of spiritual path, then uh, drugs and alcohol aren't an option, whether you're an addict or not. If you're coming from a Theravadan perspective, originally, right, the Buddha said, if you want to be free from suffering, one of the precepts is abstinence from drugs and alcohol. If you want to be on this kind of spiritual path, abstinence, period, is part of your spiritual training. So that can be really supportive for us uh, alcoholic addict people, right? Because then it's not like uh, you don't have to worry about going to church and being offered wine for sacrament. Or you don't have to worry about uh, being in a social circumstance where it's like everyone else is, is drinking. If you have enough uh, kind of serious Buddhist friends and community, they're not going to drink either, whether they're alcoholic or not. Whether they're addicts or not. Now, unfortunately, my experience of the last 20 years in American Buddhism is that this precept is rarely followed, is rarely practiced amongst Buddhists. And of course, over the last 2,500 years, many Buddhist traditions have actually forgotten that this is the Buddha's teaching and incorporated alcohol consumption and sometimes drug use into Buddhist ritual, even though it's in direct contrast to original Buddhism. But some of the Mahayana, some of the, the newer forms of Buddhism have said, eh, it's okay, and brought, begun to drink, even though the Buddha was really clearly a uh, teetotaler, as we call him. Teetotaler? I don't know. It's like an old English term, isn't it? Yeah. I don't drink alcohol. I only drink tea. <laughs> teetotaler. Society. Society who oh, they were like um, ab abolitionists. So a lot, you know, just kind of putting that out there too. Uh, you know, that Buddhists don't necessarily have a higher power, but are committed to sobriety. And that that's part of the action taken. And I say Buddhists, Theravadan Buddhists, originally. But even in Thailand or Burma or these Theravadan countries, you're going to see plenty of drugs and alcohol. And they're actually a huge drug problem in Thailand. Yeah, yeah please. Um, as Gandhi would say, be the change you wish to see in the world. And I would apply that to their own struggles with addiction with Buddhism, with action, 
And um, I just wanted to make a brief comment about um, this movie that's being made called The Shift. If any of you have heard of it, if, um, it's, I think it is evidence of compassion and love and people finally coming to a higher place of, in humanity to help all the causes that are happening on a global level. I think that we have all our material resources and so on are not working anymore. And that movie is showing proof that no matter what background of faith you're from, no matter what you do, be the change you wish to see in the world and participate on a global, le global <laughs> level, as well as on your addiction. And so I find that to be something to reflect upon, to remind myself. Incredibly important, yeah, for sure. What's the movie, Sarah? The Shift. I'm reminded somewhat of the bumper sticker that says, uh, my karma ran over your dogma. <laughs> <laughs> what you do is way more important than what you say you do or your yeah. traditions. Yeah. That raises the interesting point of the impermanence of long-term traditions. Okay, 2,500 years is an impressive figure, but apparently you don't have to go too far back before it splits into hundreds of thousands of different pieces. Yeah. And moreover, if 70 years is a very short time, even in that time, there are clearly branches. So uh, it, it brings to mind the question of understanding impermanence versus the, the if you pardon the expression, the dogma of 12 steps or 8 plus or whatever, 7 plus 4 or something, the, the Buddhist equivalent. Mm -hmm. So why are the individual steps, for instance, so sacrosanct. Surely by now there must be a better way. Or if not, how come, why isn't it even discussed? <coughs> maybe, I'm sorry, maybe that's too good a question. It's a great question. I mean, one of my, my first sort of uh, gut reactions is that last comment that I was making about Buddhists sort of letting go of uh, sobriety is partly coming out of that, like, maybe we know better than this original path, right? And so, I, for me, I, I get a little bit, uh, uh, what is it, sort of uh, fundamentalist? I was going to say that word. Are, are there fundamentalist Buddhists? For sure. For sure. And so I can get a little fundamentalist of, like, wait, no, this is what the Buddha really taught even though part of me feels like, well, look at me, right? I'm not a very typical Buddhist. I'm definitely, uh, you know, I'm so glad that there's room for a misfit like me, <laughs> like us in, in Buddhism. But um, I also really like to honor the fundamental, original teachings. Um, and it's funny, and I feel much more that way about Buddhism than I do about the 12 steps, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm clearly uh, way more open to reinterpreting the 12 steps than I am to reinterpreting Buddhism. So many for times. So many years, and people subscribe to that in what, way beyond the original intent. So I don't know Pali from, you know, anything. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, are there current translations? Has anybody looked at what the original?
Yeah, sure. I mean, you can learn Pali and then translate for yourself, just like you can learn Latin or whatever, uh, you know, the kind of original Christian writings were in. Um, there's a good book, actually, that I, I suggest about Buddhism. Uh, it's, a, it's a small book, uh, Philip Novak's Buddhism, A Concise Introduction. I don't know how many people have read that. What? We have it down here in the bookstore. I think it's a great book to give us a little bit of a sense of this sort of how, how much revisionism has happened. Philip Novak and uh, Houston Smith are both uh, scholars. And Philip Novak is a Theravadan practitioner and Houston Smith is a uh, Mahayana scholar. And, and practitioners, so they came together and they said they fought a lot while writing this in order to kind of really give a, a good, uh, balanced presentation. One of the things that they say uh, in that is that they, they both felt that almost immediately after the Buddha's death, his teachings began to be revised and changed. Part of that is it's attributed to him that on his deathbed, they asked him, well, you know, there's these 271 precepts for the monks and uh, 200 or 227? 227 for the monks and 271 for the nuns, something like that. The nuns, you, ladies get more rules. <laughs> Whatever that's about. And supposedly. That's what some man said later. <laughs> But that, uh, somewhere around the deathbed, uh, they said, well, should we you know, just stick with the fundamentals? And the Buddha, in his, in his tradition, said, uh, no, you need to find out for yourself. He said, you can let go of some of the lesser training rules. But he didn't say which ones were greater and which ones were lesser. And so when Mahayana brings uh, alcohol into their practice, that somewhere along the line, they decided that that wasn't an important practice. Abstinence wasn't uh, a greater, it was a lesser training rule. And so then that becomes part of, uh, it's okay to drink uh, as part of your practice. So I'm missing some hands that were, was there some over here? No? Please? No. no, I just said it. I was just, um, you know, when you said you you really didn't think the language should be changed, but at the same time, when you talk, you're you're changing the language. Like you know, the thing about powerless over alcohol. Well, well it's really powerless over your uh, how you react to taking the alcohol. You you know, so you know, we're translating all the time in our heads. In Buddha's, and uh, in, in, you know, the I don't know if it's addressed in the twelve steps, really. Uh, the Buddha addressed it. He said, know the Dharma for yourself, and when you're going out to teach it, speak it in the language of the people that you come into contact with. Don't keep it in Pali, or Tibetan, or Thai, or Japanese, or whatever. Don't stay stuck in that language that, you, you know, that your, your teachers maybe had it in, but translate it. You know? So in Buddhism, there's an encouragement to translate it, but to keep the core teaching the same, but let the language be uh, more of the people that you're talking to. So how can you do that when you have to say that exact language at meetings and there's newcomers coming in 
Do we have to say the exact language at meeting? I don't know, do you? I thought to be, you know, to have a... I mean, that's the tradition. That's what people do, right? Um, I don't know exactly what the guidelines are in order for having your 12-step meeting listed in a, uh, you know, directory. I'm not sure. Um, but I don't think you have to read how it works or you have to. You just have to say we are addicts or alcoholics getting together to stay sober. Open to everyone. And we're open to or closed to. What are the guidelines? You have to read the traditions and the you steps. The Otherwise, your rational recovery or your some other kind of. You're sure about that in order to get your meeting listed? Yeah. I'm not sure about that. No, no, you don't have to read them, you but, but, the, but the, that, that has to be the, 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 you know, the container. Contain. Yeah. Oh, we never read any of that. No. At your meetings. No. And you're listed in the AA directory? Yep. As what? That's what you, they just want your money. <laughs> they don't care. They don't care whether you read the steps or not. Just make sure the donation comes to world service. <laughs> you, had, you had said something earlier about the different 12-step programs and how they, they differ, and that's like an NA. Uh, the wording is different. It's updated. Yeah. I feel, I feel that way too. I actually haven't spent that much time in NA literature, although I was sort of in, in both in the beginning. I haven't reinvestigated it much, but it, it, I get that sense that when I do crack open the NA basic text, that it's 70s language instead of 30s language. Right. Right? It's updated a, a few decades anyways. Kogium Trungpa. Yeah, so he was a big drinker, wasn't he? Yes. So what's the scoop on that? I mean, I guess I heard he basically died of his alcoholism. But I, you know, like, I think Pema Children, he was her teacher. And so, so deeply respected to this day. Every tricycle man in Hanyi or Shambhala saw because I guess he was the founder of that, right? Mm -hmm. So is there, I mean, what do you guys think about that? About alcoholic Dharma teachers? Practicing alcoholic You know, and being so so highly respected, even to this day. I mean, I don't want to be moralistic about it, but I, I every time I read this guy's name, I just I read so much good stuff about this guy, and and yet uh, I'm having a hard time putting it together. <laughs> Didn't he also marry like a 17-year-old or something? He might have. He might have had a really young wife. Um, well, there has been a lot of cases of this. Uh, Chogim Trungpa, maybe the most famous one. Al somebody mentioned Alan Watts. Also, definitely uh, alcoholic addict looks like, you know, and really wise. Chungpa Watts. So there is something. It to me, I don't. To me, it feels like wow. It's, there's got to be something missing to have all of that wisdom, but still be 
abusing substances and maybe really addicted to substances on that level. Um, so I don't quite have it figured out personally. Uh, the one you know, thing that I will say is that uh, there's controversy and um, although it seems maybe to you that there's a lot of respect uh, for Trungpa, uh, of course in his magazine there's going to be a lot of respect. Right in, in anything Shambhala is always going to be very pro-Trungpa because it's his community's uh, publication. But I think in the, in the larger Buddhist scene, there's a lot more controversy about Shambhala and, and, uh, and even Pema Chodron you know, than, than is presented in somebody like Shambhala, which is just going to always be pro. And everybody, you know, every tricycle maybe would have a little bit more of a balanced view. But then, uh, you know, the people that I like, my, you know, Jack Cornfield, new Trungpa, and, you know, w when Jack talks about Trungpa, he'll say, like, yeah, he was a hardcore drinker, and he was an incredibly wise being. So, Maybe practicing alcoholic and, uh, you know, wise being can coexist, perhaps. I'm open to that. I mean, I've learned a lot from his books are great. You know, for the most, it's not totally my view, but he did a lot for... Um, also, Alan Watts, love Alan Watts' stuff. You can, if you listen to some of the old Alan Watts recordings, you can start to hear him slur. Some of the time, you know, if you kind of really do, you can start to hear like, whoa, he's lit. <laughs> you know? So each of us has to, you know, what's that mean to us? Does it mean that we totally discard somebody's wisdom because they were an alcoholic or I'm not sure. Ever since then, like I feel completely disconnected, and I still meditate. You know, I I, I practice. I practice here. You know, I, I don't think I've been able to sit like a full past an hour in a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering like when it's going to come back, mm -hmm. and if it's even going to come back. And I think that you can. So so I question kind of. You know, like, I think probably somebody could be a completely, like, practicing anything and using at the same time in my brain. But I could be wrong. I guess I would just question, uh, I, I get what you're saying, and I can even get that it would be easier on some level, mm -hmm. right? If there was that sort of blanket of medication mm -hmm. on top of our mind. Because, right, you've taken that away now for a year and a half, I think you said, and now you're kind of raw, and it's harder to sit with your own mind because you don't have that. Is that, right. that's sort of what I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, obviously I can go, okay, well, when you're smoking dope all day, of course it's easy to it's meditate. It's much easier to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? You don't have anything to worry about when you sit down. Yeah. You know. You can uh, sit for an hour and you don't feel your leg. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. So, so yeah, so there's that kind of conventional wisdom. 
yeah. you know, like glaring, you know, mm-hmm. explanation. But, you know, after a year and some odd months, like you'd think like something would come back. And like I have to tell you, I'm going out of my mind on this retreat. Like today earlier we did like sitting, walking, sitting, and then you said we needed to do walking and I, like tears came to my eyes. I was like, I can't do it. You know, like, if I take another step, I'm going to go, like, crazy, you know. And, um, you know, I had a totally different expectation. Like, I fully thought that this was going to be, like, I was going to be able to, like, hit my zone and, like, be in it. And and all I want is Dayton Dozen cheeseburger. (laughs) (laughs) That's all. (laughs) Then I'd be happy. Oh, I feel a coup d'etat coming on. Give me one. Hopefully, it will mellow out. Maybe, maybe not. I hope for you too that you also get into the groove and mellow out and. Get to the place where you're like, yes, another walking meditation. Awesome. I can't wait to take another step. Right? And sometimes that does happen on retreat, you know. And I've been in both places. And and most people that have done a lot of practice, you go in the ups and downs and in both places. And I've been in that place where, like, I just want to get the fuck out of here. And I've been in the other place where, like, I don't ever want to leave this place. And I can't, you know, and, and, you know, and that sort of like sitting is great and walking is great. And then sort of like this other voice of going like, what am I so excited about? I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting and walking. But that childlike exuberance that sometimes comes of like, this is amazing. Just this footstep and the lifting and moving and my body is balancing and it's like you're on acid and all of a sudden... (laughs) Like, why, you know, why is this so incredible and why am I so happy I haven't had a cheeseburger in weeks, you know, like, or whatever it is. But that happens too, and I hope that happens for you. One thing that is for sure is that uh, if you don't keep practicing, it'll never happen. That's the truth, right? Just also to put it into perspective, my experience with retreats, is that even in just totally silent retreats, it takes like like a day and a half of just total silence to really just get the first glimpse of even coming down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And we've been sort of in and out. Mm-hmm. And it's only that day and a half now. So stay open to the possibility that, you know, tomorrow or the next day you could really begin to settle. Yeah. I definitely think it's um, an interesting experience going in and out of silence. Like today it was great to talk at lunch, at, you know, to talk with but um, I find myself wanting to go like everybody like shh, in the dining hall. I came back like, here at lunch today. You did, yeah, yeah. I think I need to just probably like take care of my stuff more, so I don't feel like walking to the deli. Like today, I was like I'm walking to the deli at lunch. <laughs> you know, like, so I'm not. <laughs> so that's not happening. You know, I need to probably just pay more attention to what's going on. Do you sit, have you set the morning sit? Yes, not this morning. Maybe try that and in the 9.30. Mm-hmm. 
it was just me and Jason last night, but it's really quiet. Yeah. No, there's been no shifting. And got my heart. So I actually want to shift the conversation. Yeah. And that really speaks to the fact that, you know, the AA let, the, you know, let these 12 steps and pretty much the entire boilerplate be used for all these other things. So, I mean, that right there is kind of like, it's not that dogmatic. And actually, recently, within the last 10 years, there's a, there's an alternate version now of the big book. I mean, there's a, there's something in there about, like, maybe one day there will be a man on the moon or something, you know, something like that. There's a bunch of, like, stuff in there that, you know, you read it and you're like, okay, yeah, this is, I mean, a lot of the stuff you'll read, and this could apply to today, you know, and that's the, that's the power of it. But there's one where they've updated it now instead of, like, you know, wife or whatever, it says partner now, and, you know, stuff like that. They actually allowed this stuff to happen, so it's not really, it's not that dogmatic. And like I was talking about before, about how Bill came into the whole thing questioning it afterwards, um, and I was told by my sponsor to read the big book first and not the 12 by 12. After he wrote, you know, he really, he, he continued to be a rebel afterwards. I mean, and he, you know, he was a very flawed human person. He was, you know, a known adulterer. He did acid before he wrote, uh, not directly before he wrote it, but with Timothy Leary before the 12 by 12 was written. Um, so, I mean, it's not as dogmatic. And I think that a lot of people might have these experiences of going into meetings and it's just how people interpret some of the words. You just have to really realize that you know you're hearing people filter it through something else. And there's a lot of people that you know will say stuff that you know you have to listen to. And no, that's not for me. But you know, some of it, you know, there's really unexpected places that it comes from. But hey, I just wanted to say that about it. That it's not. Uh, in closing of this kind of topic, I'd like to uh, say, like, if uh, if you don't have a, if you want a meeting, and you can't find one in your town that's not too heavy in the kind of dogmatic stuff about that you don't like, start your own. Yeah. 
like Alex was saying, start one where you don't read any of the stuff and you just get together and say, I'm recovering from alcoholism and I'm not so interested in, you know, some of this dogma and who else wants to join me? And then you kind of do that and you make that the scene at your meeting. And then if people don't like it, that are used to the other way, they won't come. And you'll find people who, like Alex was saying, like this sort of simple strip down. I feel the same way about Buddhism. If you can't find a teacher in your area or a group that you like to sit with that's not doing uh, too much bowing or chanting or some of the stuff that you don't like, or maybe a group that's not doing enough bowing or chanting or the stuff that you do like, start your own. Right? Get together and say, hey, who wants to come and meditate in my living room? Uh, start a Kalyanamita. We have guidelines here at Spirit Rock, suggestions of how to get your own group together if there's not one that you want to. I'm all for it. That's why we are here is because, on some level, is because I've been doing that for the last 15 years of saying, like, you know, I don't like everything about the mainstream Buddha scene. You guys want to come meditate with me? Let's do this together, you know? Let's get more young people. Let's get more diversity. Let's talk about recovery, not just Buddhism. And so I'm all for this sort of DIY, and I empower and encourage all of you to do it yourself, and don't wait for someone else to do it. You know? And uh, as the bumper sticker says, stop bitching and start a revolution. <laughs> you know? Let's stop complaining about and start you know, taking action. And I believe that you are that kind of person, that we are that kind of group. How many people have their journals with them? How many people don't have their journals with them? How many peoples didn't bring, peoples? How many of my peoples uh, <laughs> didn't bring a journal at all? Okay, so we can get you guys, did we get some paper? Um, let's take a, a little five-minute bathroom slash get your journal break because we're going to do an inventory. All right. Five. 